Good afternoon, everybody. Almost every culture around the whole globe uses fruit in an attempt to teach and impart wisdom to others. I don't know why. But here's some of my favorite examples of some proverbs or some folk sayings that I came across this week involving fruit. For example, in Panama, when talking about the importance of moderation, they have an expression that goes like this. Half the orange tastes just as sweet as the whole orange. Pretty good. In the Sudan, when questioning the veracity or the truth of an unmotivated person, they have an expression that says this. When the monkey cannot reach the banana with his hand, he says it is not sweet. In Turkey, when they're trying to teach about greed, they have an expression that says, two watermelons cannot be held under one arm. In, Senegal, in the Senegal, when uh, they're talking about the dangers of being overly cautious, this is my favorite, they say, make sure to eat your coconuts while you still have your teeth. And uh, in the Ukraine, when they're trying to explain the role of hardships uh, and how that plays into the pursuit of joy, they say this, only when you have eaten a lemon do you appreciate what sugar is. So different cultures of the world uh, have also contributed to our understanding of the health and the nutritional benefits of fruit. For example, back in the age of exploration, like the 1700s, over 50% of all sailors had scurvy, which is an unpleasant condition with highly uncomfortable uh, bleeding of the skin and infection. But then in 1753, a Scottish surgeon in the Royal Navy discovered that scurvy was just caused by a lack of vitamin C and could easily be prevented by just adding citrus to the sailors' diets. So the significance of this information is that people in every culture have always had a vague awareness that fruit and produce is good for you. It brings health, and we should want more of it in our lives. This is true in the Bible as well. It's a technique that we see in Scripture. In Galatians 5, to 23 the author uses fruit imagery to teach us that living as God instructs us to live produces a greater crop of good things in our life. He gives a list, and so each Sunday this month, we're talking about one of the different good things on this list that we're told a Christian is supposed to pursue more of in their life. This afternoon, we're studying a passage where Jesus tells us that joy is one of these fruits that God wants us to have more of in our life. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33. And I'd like to talk about this passage in two parts. All right. Let's start by discussing how most of the people in our culture and most of the people in our community pursue joy. And then let's turn uh, to the three profound ways that Jesus is explaining in this passage that joy is uniquely possible uh, for a Christ follower. All right, so section one. Let's talk about joy in the ways that most of the people that we know pursue it. And to help you remember those different categories uh, and how prevalent this thinking is, I tried to illustrate those with just some common lyrics from songs that we might hear on the radio. I think one of the most common ways that we all pursue joy is by seeking sublime moments, going to beautiful places, being outside on a sunny day, 
You guys might be familiar with that uh, pop song by Sheryl Crow called Soak Up the Sun. And she says, I'm going to soak up the sun. I'm going to tell everyone I've got no one to blame. For every time I feel lame, I'm looking up, right? And so this just kind of, it's maybe not a great song, but it's a great way of illustrating that if we can just be in a beautiful place, if we can just have some sun shining on us, we are going to have the joy that we seek. We are incredibly fortunate here in Big Sky to just live in a beautiful place. Uh, not everybody here is from a beautiful place. Some people are from ugly towns, right? Like if you ask somebody from an ugly place, what's the most beautiful thing in your town? They might say there's a bench down at the park that is by a pond, right? They might say sometimes I see a sunset when I walk into the bowling alley, okay? But in Big Sky, if you ask somebody, where's your favorite place to hike? Where's your favorite place to ski? Where's your favorite place to camp? Where's your favorite place to hunt? They'll all do the same thing. They'll think about it. They'll give you an answer. And they'll be like, wait, no. And then they'll, get, they'll change their answer to another place. And then they'll kind of shrug their shoulders. And they'll be like, well, that's, it's just kind of an unfair question. Because there's so many beautiful and inspirational places around here. So that's definitely a thing that brings joy to a lot of people. Another category or another way that people pursue joy can be illustrated by the old song. It's probably from the 60s by Bobby McFerrin called Don't Worry, Be Happy. You guys ever heard that song? And one of the lyrics goes, In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry you make it double. Don't worry, be happy, right? In other words... There's irritating things in life, and you can find joy if you can just have the discipline to overlook those annoying things. And uh, I think we've all learned on some level that you can have more joy through the discipline of just overlooking the things that are really bothersome. But, you know, sometimes life just gets really bothersome. About four days before Christmas, I was in the post office. And uh, I thought they'd been doing a great job getting people their packages. There's about 12 or 14 people in line. And I was about 6th or 7th away from the window. There was this lady, I could tell that she was pretty affluent, and I could tell that she was used to kind of having people do what she wanted her to do, but like not in the post office, right? <laughs> you, you're going to wait just like everybody else. And so she's sitting there holding her mail like this. And this is, this is what she starts like. She's not talking to anybody. She's waiting, and then she just snapped. She goes... And then she got it together. She turned around once or twice. She, she takes out her phone. She puts her phone away. And then she, and, and she's just biting her lip. And she's just not able to do what Bobby McFerrin was telling her to do. Right? Um, I, but I took that moment and I just thought to myself, like, yeah, this is a little bit frustrating, but I was able to order Christmas presents for all my loved ones. I didn't have to go to the store. They're getting delivered here. Like, I'm going to get them in five more minutes, right? Like, so I took that opportunity to uh, try to put that into practice. Uh, another way that people pursue joy is, um, I guess, expressed in a, a lot of rap songs, right? And other mediums as well. Uh, but there's just kind of this idea that if you grew up without a lot of the things that you wanted, joy can be found by having enough money to get those things, right? There's one song that I listened to in high school. It says, we used to fuss when the landlord dissed us. No heat, wonder why Christmas missed us. Birthdays were the worst days, but now we ship, now we sip champagne 
when we're thirsty. And uh, you might think to yourself that's a primitive way of looking at life, but if you really take a moment to reflect, that is an absolutely predominant big sky attitude. If I can be successful, I'll have joy, right? If I have the things now that I didn't have growing up, I'll have all the joy that I ever wanted and more. I think there's a fourth way that people pursue joy in our culture and in our community, and that's through companionship. I guarantee you've all heard the song by The Temptations, My Girl. So simple, so pretty. I've got sunshine on a cloudy day when it's cold outside. I've got the month of May. I guess you'd say, what makes me feel this way? My girl. And there's this attitude that if you can find companionship, if you can find the perfect somebody, you'll have all the joy that you need. And there's probably even single people here right now that are looking at some gray-haired couple next to them saying, that's all I ever want in life. I want to go, one day I want to have that. But speaking of somebody who's been married 20 years, like that couple's just going to go home and argue over how to load the dishwasher, right? <laughs> or uh, whose turn it is to fold the laundry. But I digress. Think for a second. This is seriously. Think for a second about the incredible amount of money that's spent on clothes and lipstick and cologne and vehicles and dating apps and all the behavior that's driven by that desire to find that companionship that you're told will bring you the joy that you seek. So these are four ways, often good ways, places that our mind will go when we're told to pursue joy. These are things that we turn to when we're looking for more joy in our lives. I don't think that they're bad, but I don't think that they're always possible. And it becomes frustrating to seek out joy when joy in the way that you are seeking it is not Possible. It's frustrating. So I just want to say that this is not the kind of joy Jesus is telling us to pursue. What happens to people that are seeking joy in these four categories when it's the fourth gloomy, sunless February day in a row? You can't soak up the sun, can you? Uh, what happens to the person that's pursuing joy in these ways when their whole life they've just overlooked the hard things and they're told that they have cancer. What happens to somebody who's been telling themselves their whole life that if they can just be successful, they'll have everything that they've always wanted to and their industry crashes or the market crashes and that's no longer possible for them? I say this with just a lot of uh, just um, humility. I don't say it flippantly, but what happens when that person that you have found companionship with your whole life is taken home before you're ready to say goodbye. Well, the good news is that Jesus tells us to pursue joy. Jesus tells us that joy is possible. And he is teaching us about a joy that's possible independent of these other four avenues. He's telling us about a joy that's possible for all believers in all things. And that's what I'd like us to focus our attention to now. Let's go back over uh, this passage in John 16. And uh, let me just kind of refresh our memories with uh, how Jesus starts off. It's a, little bit, it's a little bit vague, a little bit weird sounding. Jesus starts off this, uh, this address by saying this. In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a while you will see me. And at this point, some of his disciples said to another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? 
and because I'm going to the Father. And they kept asking, what does he mean by in a little while? And we don't understand what he's saying. And so this is a great opportunity to uh, teach uh, why a lot of the things that we read in the Bible don't make sense. I think when Jesus, when we read Jesus is saying this, it doesn't make sense because we kind of assume that he's saying it to us. And we think to ourselves, when did we see Jesus? But then we don't see him for a while. And so I know at least when I read this uh, the first time, I think, you know, I know we're going to see Jesus again when he comes back at the end of the world. So, you know, maybe he's talking about that and we're just kind of supposed to make ourselves comfortable till that happens. But again, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so this is just a great place to remind us that the Bible's always written to a specific audience or the message that's given is given to a specific audience. And Jesus isn't talking directly to us. He's directly talking to the disciples. And there was a time when Jesus was going to leave them and then come back and they'd see him again in a little while. And of course, that was the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away, but then you're going to see me again. And he's specifically talking about when he's going to come back in his resurrected body and be with and teach the disciples again. So all that to say, when Jesus is teaching us about this joy that's possible for us in all circumstances, he's teaching us about a joy, he's giving us a clue, it's because of the resurrection. There's a joy that's possible for Christians because Jesus is rose from the grave, and that's what each one of these next three points is going to uh, be rooted in, okay? So three ways that a Christian can find a unique joy that's just not possible uh, for, for non-believers. First one is this. A Christian can endure sorrow with anticipation because of the new spiritual life that is being produced. Okay? A Christian can find joy even in hard and sorrowful things because of this promise that new spiritual life is being produced. Let's, uh, let's read how Jesus is explaining this in verses 20 to 22. He says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You'll grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. And so it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So the last week of Jesus' life, sometimes we call it Holy Week, we see this pattern, okay? Jesus had to decide in that week if he was going to follow his own intuition, his own desires, or if he was going to follow God's plan. And that's what that monologue is all about in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so where I'm going with this is that we have this model that Jesus submitted to God's plan. He suffered and he was killed and he rose from the dead. And now we all have new spiritual life as a result. Do you see how suffering and anguish led to new spiritual life. That's the pattern of the gospel, and it's something that even people who believe the gospel will experience time and time again. I think when Jesus gave his illustration, it made people laugh. It's funny if you think about it. If you guys have ever been in a delivery room, if you've ever given birth, it's chaotic, it's painful, it's messy. And there's a moment when everyone in the room, probably even the delivery doctor, says, I'm never doing this again. Right? 
But then that new life comes into focus and you realize how precious it is. And the, 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 the mother bravely says, I'd be willing to do this again. Right? Because the preciousness of uh, new life comes out of the suffering and the agony. So what Jesus is saying here is that a Christian can have joy because even in the suffering and even in the hard things, God is going to do something new in your life. God is going to bring some beautiful discovery. God is going to give you empathy for somebody that you're going to minister to in the future. God is going to give you some insight or piece of wisdom that you're going to use in the path of somebody else. You know, and it's not that uncommon that we see that great growth comes out of struggle and it comes out of suffering. Thought of some examples? The best dog that you ever had started off as a shoe-eating and carpet-wrecking puppy, right? It was a long process to get them into that faithful, trusty, obedient dog. The knowledge that you use every day in your career was likely acquired through long nights of studying in college or a really challenging internship. The healthy adult relationship that you have with your parents somehow came out of some really challenging moments in your teen years, in your middle school years, right? If you have a muscular body, it came as a result of breaking down muscle fibers. You lifted weights and the muscles rebuilding more strongly. If you're free after years of addiction, it only came after the painful discipline of pursuing sobriety. We have so many examples in life of new life that comes out of agony and struggle. And I think what Jesus is telling us here is that we should pursue joy, but it's a unique joy. And a unique joy, it's a unique joy that comes from knowing that even in the worst things that God has ever allowed to happen around you, beautiful things will come out of that. New spiritual life that God will use for your betterment and for the betterment of others. Jesus is telling us in John 16, 16 to 22 that God's going to use the sorrow and the pain in your life to do beautiful things in your future and that allows us to have joy even in those really low times. All right, number two, I think there's at least three things, probably more, but a second reason that we can have joy in all things as a Christian because of the resurrection is this. Christian can have joy in all times and all things because of the connection that we have with God through Christ which is powering this development into a preconceived work. Let's hear what it says in verses 23 to 24. And that day you'll no longer ask me anything. And very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. In other words, there's some sort of progression that's happening. And anything that we ask for that's moving us towards that preconceived work that God has created us to accomplish, like nothing can stop it. Nothing will get in the way of God growing us into that thing that he created us to be. Um, we know that this passage can't mean that you just get anything that you ask for because we've all tried it, right? Like we've all, we've all just prayed for those things that we want and we haven't gotten them and we've kind of come to the realization, well, I must be asking for something that's not in God's plan for my life. But Jesus, I think, in an encouraging way, is saying here, like, anything that you ask for that's part of that plan is going to happen because nothing's going to stop that progression of what God is ultimately going to turn you into. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians 2.10. It says, We're created to do good works that are prepared in advance for us to do. 
Like, you think about a beautiful marble statue, and nothing is added to that block. Things are just chipped away, right? Like, God is working through everything that we experience to take away the part of the work that's not part of the masterpiece, and eventually, God will leave us with what He always intended for us to be. I got a great illustration of that. There was this guy named Tom Dempsey, and he was born in 1947. He was born without toes on his right foot and without fingers on his right hand. And I don't know a lot about his childhood, but I imagine not having toes on his right foot or fingers on his right hand hindered him from accomplishing a lot of the things that he wanted to do. It probably made him not so great at sports. It probably made it a little bit harder to turn in his homework and get dates and all the other things that adolescents and teenagers want to do. But because he had no toes, his foot was basically like a sledgehammer. And he became a field goal kicker. And uh, in 1970, in October of 1970, He won a game for his team, the New Orleans Saints, by kicking a field goal that was 63 yards long, which is, I mean, that's really, really far. (laughs) A record that would stand for over 40 years. And I love that illustration because there's probably things in your life right now that feel to you like Tom Dempsey's ugly foot, right? You probably thought, God, how could you let me be born without toes? I'm hideous. And we have thoughts like, God, how could you let them leave? God, how could you let them get sick? God, how could you put me in this situation? But it was because that hammer foot had no toes that he could kick a football 10 feet farther than anyone else had ever kicked one before, right? Jesus is telling us in John 16, 23 to 24 that a Christian can have joy because God knows what his goals are for your life. He's going to give you everything that you need to accomplish those things. The plan will be accomplished. The plan is what you would choose if you knew everything that God knew. And I think this is another reason that we can have joy, even in hard things. All right, as we wrap it up here, there's a third thing that Jesus says in this lesson to his disciples that can allow us to have joy in ways that other people can't have joy, and it's this. A Christian can endure hard things with joy because Jesus has already proven victorious over sin and death. Listen to how he says it in verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. So what does this mean that Jesus Christ has overcome this world? I think it means a lot of things. I'll just focus in on one aspect of that. A lot of people in this life find their joy through youth and beauty and desirability. And that's unfortunate because we also get old, right? And uh, if you find your joy through youth and beauty, as time goes on, you find yourself moving a little bit further and further away from those ideals that the rest of the world values. Sometimes I go into a restaurant and the waitress says, "Uh, your table is over here, sir. Do you know what it means when a college-age girl calls you sir? It means that they don't see a person, they just see an old guy, right? And so there's this idea in life that there's a time when you're at your peak, there's a time when you're at your most desirable and valuable to others, but then we have that expression over the hill, right? And so there's this idea that over time you're gradually moving away 
from those things. You're on a decline. You're going downhill. Like that is the way that the world thinks. It's foolish to pretend otherwise. When Jesus Christ says he has overcome the world, it means that he is the only person that's died, gone into hell, faced the judgment of God, been judged sinless, burst forth from the grave and resumed his existence just as he did before. Death could not hold him. He would not deteriorate. He was victorious in the ways that nobody outside of of his power can be victorious. And this makes me think of a really great pattern that I think could inspire all of us. Buying a new car is not a good investment. The day you buy a new car, it will lose 19%. That's just the facts of it. Okay? That's called depreciation. Doesn't matter how nice of a car that you buy or how expensive it is. Ford, Chevy, Cadillac, Honda, BMW, they will all lose 19% the first year that you own them. In other words, that car is kind of like us in our 40s, right? Like when we drive it off the lot, I'm 43 so I can say that, it starts to depreciate. It starts to lose its value in the eyes of others. But there's one kind of car that that's not really true for. Think of a classic car. Think of a muscle car. Think of something that came off the assembly line in Detroit in the mid-70s. Somebody bought one of those cars for, I don't know, probably $10,000 back then. They probably put about 120,000 miles on it, and then it got in an accident, and they fixed it up a little bit, gave it to their nephew, gave it to their son, maybe another 50,000 miles before it got put in a barn, you know, put, put on a salvage lot. And then a collector saw it. And he's like, I'm going to fix this up. So then he bought it for probably $500, $600. Took it out to his garage. And night after night, he went out there and he banged on the body and he brought in new parts and he restored it better than it's ever been before. Then that collector, that master craftsman, took it to an auction and sold it for like $70,000. More than it cost when it came off the assembly line. In other words, there's a pattern of something that appears to diminish before acquiring more value than it's ever had. And I think that pattern of the life of a restored and classic car is the pattern of a Christian, right? You might start to feel like you're losing your value. The doctor might look you in the eye and say, I'm sorry, you're not going to make it. You might have a loved one who knew Christ who passed on before you were ready to say goodbye, but that's like the decline is interrupted. Because the gospel changes everything. And when Jesus says, I've overcome the grave, it means that it's not just all downhill as time goes by. It means that our value, we've been restored. We'll find ourselves in eternity with that master uh, uh, restorer. And we don't uh, have to lose our value when uh, we might lose value in the eyes of others. All right. Let's try to wrap this up. Let's try to tie this all together. There's a lot of sources for joy in this world. We can find joy through going to a beautiful place. We can find joy through just having the discipline to overlook the irritating things around us. We can find joy through achieving our dreams and acquiring things that we always wanted. And we can find joy through companionship. But those are not joys that are possible for all people in all time. But through Christ and through the power of the resurrection, there's a joy that can 
fill us up more than adequate in all things. And uh, that resurrection joy comes through knowing that God works through all things, even the terrible things, to bring new spiritual life around you. We can have joy because of this connection with God that he's going to finish what he started and he's going to give us all we need to get to that point that he created us to be at. And we can have joy knowing that Jesus is victorious over sin and death and the grave is not the end for us. There's greater things ahead uh, at the after than there's ever been in the before. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward, wrap up with a song or two. Uh, and I hope when you read Galatians 5, 22 to 23, and Paul tells you to have more joy in your life, I hope you don't think of those first four categories and get discouraged. I hope you don't come to the hard things that God is doing in your life and get angry because they're making joy in that first sense impossible. I hope you're able to start to unpack some of the things that Jesus is telling us in John 16 and say, I want that joy. And Jesus tells me I can have more of it. Let's think about that as we finish with these final songs.